Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. Um, this is a very special edition of On Tap. We are recording live at the Conference for Research on Choreographic Interfaces. Uh, we are at Brown University. This is a convening hosted by the Granoff Center for the Creative Arts, supported by the Humanities Initiative Programming Fund, the Kogut Institute for the Humanities, Departments of Theater Arts and Performance Studies, Music and American Studies um, at, at Brown University. Um, we would like to thank all of these entities. We'd also like to thank right now um, Sydney Skybetter and Kiri Miller and Ariane Michaud. Um, we actually have uh, tap mugs for you up here. Would you like to come up and, and collect your mug? Um, yeah, come on up. Come on up. Thank you so much for all of your help. And we'd also like to say thank you uh, to Kate Gao, um, to Peter and Greg uh, of production at the Granoff Center. Um, you guys have all been amazing. Later on tonight, we're watching Minority Report. We're super psyched about that. Um, but let me now introduce my other co-hosts. I am, I am joined, as always, uh, by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Um, Sarah, have you seen Minority Report before? Many times. So <laughs> I was tempted to ask Sydney if we could do this podcast in like precog setup, like a, <laughs> like a pool, like I, a shallow pool and three. I think before gallons. the end of it, we'll get a, we'll get a photo of us lying on the ground. <laughs> um, uh, with, with, I think this is brilliant. I I'm waiting for the, for the, the, like the indoor pool to arrive. I think it'll be on its way. I hear it's being delivered. Totally um, right. They're in like a bath. It's like a sort of milky, like a kind of milk. Anyways, we'll, we'll watch it later. Our uh, setup is right. You know, yeah. we got like, you know, more or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, were vaguely psychic. I get to be the girl. <laughs> um, right? uh, a girl. Very important role in Minority Report, the, the girl precog. Um, uh, I am joined also <laughs> by Harvey Young of Boston University. Um, Harvey, great to see you. I read something online about BU Opera Institute doing a, an opera, which is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Is yeah, this it's, right? it's, it's running right now. Uh, it's Dolores Claiborne by Tobias Picker, uh, and it's the adaptation of Dolores Claiborne the novel, which then became a film as an opera. You know, so it's, uh, it's pretty intense, and Tobias is actually in Boston right now. That's phenomenal. I, I would love to get a chance to see that. Um, uh, today on the podcast, we have three exciting topics. We read Simone Brown's bracing, exhilarating, penetrating book, Dark Matters, um, uh, which explores themes of surveillance and blackness spanning the 18th and 21st centuries. We are going to talk about uh, deep fakes, a new genre of AI-enabled videos that can convincingly digitally graft one face onto another body, showing speech acts and physical actions that never happened with alarming verisimilitude. And we all watched slash played Bandersnatch, the um, new-ish, uh, in the 21st century, I mean, it's brand new, but in the 21st century, it already feels like it's an old thing. Um, uh, Bandersnatch, the new uh, Netflix Black Mirror collaborative experiment in interactive storytelling. 
Um, so we're excited to get into these topics. Uh, usually at this time of the podcast, we, we round up some news in the field of theater and performance studies, but instead of doing that, this time we're going to let the audience know uh, that we're going to incorporate your talents and genius into this recording. Uh, in addition to our three co-host chairs, we have a fourth chair right here. Um, if in the middle of a segment, you have a question, you have an intervention, there's something that you'd like to add in. Um, you should just walk up and plant yourself in this seat in the fourth chair and we will, at a, an appropriate moment, uh, ask you to introduce yourself, join us for a minute or two, um, and then return to your seat. We're gonna do that instead of a Q&A and so we'll see how that goes. I'm excited about it, I hope you guys are excited about it. Um, so first up, we read Simone Brown's book, Dark Matters, on the Surveillance of Blackness, which was published by Duke University Press in 2015. This is a deeply historical look at the intersection of blackness and surveillance, beginning with facets of the transatlantic slave trade and wrapping up with 21st century practices, including TSA pat-downs, Hollywood casting, racial bio biometrics. Um, the book uh, is a, uh, effectively infuses surveillance studies with historical consciousness and specifically the consciousness of how since slavery the Western world has generated very heterogeneous and creative ways of scoping, illuminating, and otherwise keeping track of black bodies. There's a lot in this book. Um, it's fascinating. Sarah, I wondered if you would start us off um, uh, giving us uh, some of the provocations it occasioned for you. So what I, one of the things I found most uh, compelling, and, and I, I mean, I think it's a, I had read uh, parts of the book previously and, and really welcomed the opportunity to, to read it more deeply again, um, is, the, is the language of performance as it, as it runs through, through, through the book and, and this idea of uh, certain kinds of compelled performance and certain kinds of rewarded performance and the way in which the under surveillance and, and as, Brown points out so beautifully the way that uh, those modes and those techniques are not unique to the technologies that we experience now, but have long and embedded histories in in colonial expansion globally, but are you know have never left us, particularly within the history of the United States. That that the idea of compelled bodies and compelled and, and rewarded and, and disciplined performance is really a kind of governing logic to how most of us now experience the world um, either from sites of privilege or, 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 or sites of, of, of oppression or sometimes both and, and the confusion between those. And I found that just unbelievably interesting. I was reading this book also alongside another new book that just came out by Shoshana Zubrov um, called Surveillance Capitalism. And, and many of the themes and ideas between those, those, these two books really run together. Zubrov does a lot less work in terms of making questions of, of race and racial subjectivity central in the way that, that Brown does in, in ways that I find completely compelling and necessary. Um, but, the, but the chapter that really felt for me very key is, is Zubrov has a chapter called Make Them Dance. And it's about games and, uh, and other kinds of interactive technologies and, and tools that really compel and reward certain kinds of performances um, and, and have the effect of conditioning different kinds of behavior. And, and so I, I, in, it's impossible having read Simone Brown's book and then reading Zubrov's book, that chapter in particular, not to understand the ways that these questions of enslavement, compulsory labor, 
uh, co-opting of, of bodies and, and sites of, of performance uh, are, are inextricable from a kind of history of where we are now in, ter in terms of technology, but also how deeply racialized those histories are. So I, I found it just super compelling from, from those respects. What, would you, what did you think, Harvey? No, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, what was striking to me uh, about Dark Matters is how when you think about the concept of surveillance uh, and technology, um, you know, more often than not, there's a way in which race gets absented, right? You know, so in the larger conversations around you know, the sense of a hyper-surveilled society, you know, sort of hyper-technological -techn te investigations, uh, there's a way in which it's, it becomes, um, you know, when race and gender is attached to it, it becomes a white male-centered arg argument and conversation. Uh, and what Brown is doing is she's saying, wait a second, you know, let's actually acknowledge the fact that this idea of surveillance uh, is actually premised and built upon earlier modes of sort of hyper-looking at bodies, right, in which bodies have been looked at historically, uh, and those bodies have been black bodies. And what I really like in terms of intervention is how every so often the book looks specifically at African-American women's bodies, right? Um, you know, so everything from biomarkers to, um, you know, just, you know, the, a light literally being sort of shined or shown on a person as a way of making you hyper-visible throughout history. You know, and saying, if we can stitch those together, not only is there a place to sort of rethink sort of surveillance as a, um, centuries-long endeavor, you know, um, but also to incorporate race in the conversation around gender within um, this present moment. Yeah, I, I had a, a similar reaction, and I think the the method of the book is, especially with the first chapter, which is about panopticism and Bentham, and and you know, we so much, so many of us will have been trained by reading certain books by Michel Foucault, which instantiate a lot of concepts that we use in terms of understanding the the capillary distribution of power and the way that um, you know panopticism is a sort of symbol for that, um, and Brown interrupts Foucault and gives us raced examples that correspond to these very iconic images. She reminds us of the, the narrative of uh, Marie-Joseph Angelique, a Portuguese-born um, uh, slave who uh, was executed in ways that evoke the way that Damien, that famous case that Foucault gives us, uh, was executed. And, and for me, the, the way that this landed or that kind of um, reintroducing or properly centering uh, uh, racial difference um, uh, for me really rose out of that first chapter and the sort of comparison of the diagrams, the diagram of the panopticon and then the diagram of the of the slave ship Brooks. Um, it, it took me back to another book that I was familiar with. I think this book is from 2009. It's called The Culture of Diagram. It's by John Bender and Michael Marinan. It's an art historical project, but it is about the the materiality of graphics and diagrams sort of beginning in the 18th century with the Encyclopedia Project. And part of the point that they make is that, you know, the diagram is supposed to present clarity and transparency and this kind of space for creative misuse. Um, and, and Bender and Marion talk about the sort of material whiteness of the, doc, of the, of the diagram and having Red brown now that whiteness means something very different in this context. I, I would have to go back and read Bender and, and Marianne to see if they're cognizant of the whiteness as a sort of marker of racial difference. Um, but going back to that, it's of course this technology which presents itself as neutral um, and 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 you know and our and our ideas about surveillance which are frequently uh, centered in a kind of unthinking default place of white male um, uh, consciousness are actually from their beginning 
beginning about constructing racial difference and about those sort of power operations. Um, so that was one of those sort of big mind-blowing moments for me in reading this book. That whole question, though, I mean, I think of uh, visibility and visibility and when being invisible is, is productive and, and, and sites of resistance. And that's, you know, um, you know we're doing the podcast, so our, our, our listeners are coming to this question for the first time today, but we're sitting in front of a group of people who uh, have spent the morning thinking and talking and, and sort of uh, working through the, these ideas from a number of different, uh, different ways. And, and one of the other things I'm thinking about is in the context of this conference in particular, the role of the graphic and the textual as, as uh, as standing in for, for bodily experience and, and the ways in which one of the things I think is really great about Circe is, is putting bodily experience back in the middle of that and, and a lived subjectivity into a conversation about documentation. And, and for me, this was, this was a moment in, in Brown's book where, uh, where she uh, goes through that, that illustration that you're talking about of, the, of the, the ship, the Brooks, and talks about how the individual bodies rendered um, are not copies of one another, but are each uh, slightly different and slightly uh, nuanced in terms of their depiction. And, and it, I mean, I was really uh, moved by that and, and also uh, uh, sort of un, uh, like, uh, well, I mean, uh, upset is like kind of a, uh, a trivial word to use, but, the, but literally kind of up, upended by that realization and how these kinds of, the care that someone would take to, to depict with such uh, specificity the individual bodies in this diagram and the lack of care of the bodies themselves and, and how this, I think, also translates into what is our data uh, worth in the open market and how, how cheaply do we hold our own information and our own bodies uh, in, these, in these marketplaces. Um, and, and so for me, I, that there was a like whole question of, of specificity in diagrams in particular. That's fascinating. I, I, hadn't lo I hadn't focused on that fact of that diagram, but it is, I mean, the, the theme of sort of individual differentiation, the, the differences among individuals, there's a tension there between what the, you know, these sort of late 18th, early 19th century kind of in architectural institutions that are about quantitative management of bodies and erasing difference, but it seems as though the, the sort of 20th and 21st century surveillance phenomena that we're circling back on would accentuate difference, right? I mean, the thing about your data signature as it circulates through all sorts of invisible markets is that you're you, like you're the person in this zip code with this demographic profile and buys this kind of, you know, instant pasta dinner, et cetera, right? There's but a kind you're of only valuable when you're aggregated with all with a lot right. of other. Like, like this is like the there's a sort of fundamental. I'm not dis, I'm not disagreeing with you, but there's a fundamental tension there, which is that on the one hand, I think some of us, and I'll include myself here, rationalize it like, what do I matter? No one's really paying attention to me. Um, they're just looking at big chunks of data. Or when companies are like, we don't, we only look at the metadata, right? It's fine. We're just dealing with the metadata. Um, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's great, metadata. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that is. Like, who cares about that? You know, do, can I get my coupon? Um, and versus the idea of like, oh, I'm individually picked out and, and identified. And, and I think it's a slippery thing where I think it, depending on the context, one has more meaning than another, but it's always rationalized in the way to make whatever transaction you are trying to 
get through, right? And this is something else that Brown points to in the terms of racial baggage at the airport, right? Mm -hmm. How much friction you have going through TSA, how much friction you have crossing a border, how much um, weight you carry as you move through space, how, mm -hmm. how surveilled and, and how detailed your body is examined. Um, but there's in, also in a way in which there's a level of subjectivity that's involved in the uh, intrusion of surveillance into a person's life, right? Yeah. You know, so it's not evenly applied to all people. And I, and I think that that is something that is uh, interesting to me uh, in terms of thinking about, you know, so the abstraction of bodies within surveillance, and then in this case, uh, within Brown's work, um, you know, the very sort of particular instantiation of, of particular black bodies, right? You know, and I think that that's ultimately at the tension that we have at play here. It's the you know, you know, you know, you zoom out at large, right? You have that Brooks diagram you're talking about, uh, where it's like many individuated bodies, but they're also kind of essentialized in much in much the same way. Um, you know, but you also have the very particular and real experiences of, of, of people who are, you know, in the hold, right? You know, um, um, you know, sort of facing the TSA pat down. You know, and I think that that is. Uh, something that we often lose sight of when we sort of abstract this idea of surveillance. Um, you know, and when you really zoom out and you think about, you know, sort of the role of sort of technology, um, you, know, ascent, you know, like you get more and more of this idea that, you know, in order to work with large groups of data, you're ultimately essentializing groups of people, right? You know, so high, the, the whole idea of sort of recognizable biomarkers that are read legible through, you know, sort of, um, you know, data analytics, right? Where, you know, lots of faces are sort of screened and, and resonate and, and they're registered as, and they're, and they're written by code to read as black or white or whatever else, you know, that ultimately has this sort of capacity to, um, uh, you know, you know, create a fairly rigid classification that's essentialized that kind of goes back to a 19th century scientific discourse, right? You know, so it's interesting, and this is what I like about dark matters is how, um, you know, as we move forward in time, we're also moving backward at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those markers can be, they can end up attached to you and, and be totally detached from you as well. This is, I'm, I'm gonna miss the specifics of this, but does, many of you might have remembered some phenomenon that went around the internet recently where you could look into Facebook's profile of you and it would discover, it, just, it, it labeled all sorts of people as African-American on the basis of cultural preferences, right? So for, for Facebook's algorithm, yeah. I mean, it didn't matter that I that got my race wrong or whatever, but as far as it was concerned, like this is the type, this is a black type of person who listens to this and likes these shows, right? And so, you know, that type of error, I don't know what to make of that. Like, it's, a, it's one of these curious sort of... Yeah, there, there's a lab uh, at USC, yeah. uh, and, and you hear about it every so often because, you know, once a year there's um, an article that'll come out, you know, it'll circulate, uh, you know, across the mainstream media in terms of um, the number of speaking roles, you know, uh, by women, uh, uh, by people of color broken down within different groups. You might say, how do people know that? Like, how do we know that 42% of lead roles were, you know, women uh, in mainstream films? And what it is, is it's like, there's actually, uh, through an engineering department, uh, they're feeding uh, the films, you know, you know, through sort of computer software in which previously was coded to recognize faces and, and, and certain tones of voice and, you know, and how they register as male or female, as you know, a look as being, you know, a signature of being black or white or uh, Southeast Asian or uh, whatever else. Uh, and then it, it sort of outputs the data, you know, but what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to write code? you know, that struggles ultimately, you know, to identify transgender individuals, that struggle to identify biracial individuals, um, you know, so that we have this wealth of data that's emerging, you know, through a form of surveillance technology, a, a, a form of uh, data analytics uh, that ultimately uh, reduces and, you know, creates a whole category of other, you know, and that itself is problematic. And I, and I think that's where we are right now.
I, I this might be the occasion for me to advance an idea that came up in reading uh, uh, this book that I'll do this at my own risk because I don't, it's not fully formed. I think I'll try to spin this out and perhaps create a net that I will step into and fall down a flight of stairs into a dumpster. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it, it would be a kind of critique, possible critique of surveillance studies, uh, a subfield in which I am an interloper and a non-expert. And so please caveat uh, uh, ocular, ca- what would you say? Not caveat lector, but like whoever's listening. Um, caveat listener. Um, uh, it, it, and so it would be Someone this, tell us. That, <laughs> what's that? Caveat auditors. Thank you so much, Kiri. Um, uh, so the idea would be that, that, and this comes from the introduction where Brown, um, uh, I think, uh, uses an intervention by Steve Mann to talk about, you know, sort of uh, para-surveillance or different kinds of surveillance and uh, surveillance, for example. Um, and all of these rest on this sort of ocular metaphor, a kind of viewing from above from a power position or not from above. But there's that ocular metaphor that belongs to the way we think about surveillance. And in my judgment, there are there's very old forms of surveillance that would meet this um, uh, criterion of this sort of ocular metaphor. You, you follow someone through the streets or you do what you know the French state did in the 17th century and you open people's mail and you read it. And so reading or looking at a body would have that you know, engagement with a kind of ocularity. Um, and these forms of surveillance persist. But then you also have um, arguably cameras and other machines that engage with the visible or even invisible light spectrum and are surveillance machines in the same way that they also are viewing in the way that an eye is viewing. And I would say you could even expand that definition a little bit and include auditory surveillance uh, on the argument that it's sort of sensory, yeah. right? You're, you're eavesdropping, you're listening, but it's surveillance in the way that the you know other senses are sort of uh, frequently compared to the eye by the hegemony of ocular centrism, et cetera. Um, and still reading practices like 20th century surveillance. Uh, my colleague at, at WashU, Bill Maxwell, has a book called FBI's Eyes, um, which is about the FBI's sustained close readings of uh, African-American literature from the Harlem Renaissance through the Black Power Movement and was a sustained and very invested and very perceptive reading practice, um, which was about, of course, you know, keeping an eye on, on potentially radical uh, African-Americans. So even that, I would say, it's surveillance. It's, it's, it's within the sort of sensory paradigm. We now, I think, tend to extend the notion of surveillance to other communicative activity, um, which is data-driven, algorithmic. I think of it as sort of data-driven com- computational monitoring, which I would propose is something else, mm-hmm. that it's, it's perhaps not proper to assign um, the way that we input data about ourselves in Facebook, by you know, typing our phone number into a keypad at CVS, by um, uh, you know, signaling sort of preferences that allow us to be rendered into data and processed by an algorithm. They're just, I, I think that we are sometimes tempted to make a mistake by identifying a lot of different things as surveillance in a way that makes us think that there's a kind of personified, viewing, judging mind watching this, when in fact a lot of this is, is stuff that emerges out of the kind of financialization of government and, and sort of computational information management systems that don't necessarily have an ocular component to them in certain cases and don't necessarily have a kind of human consciousness that's judging and saying, you know, I see this person, is, you know, what's their gender? What's What's their race? What's right. their politics? There's there's something broader and more pervasive, I think, that maybe we are mistaken if we call it all surveillance. What do y'all think? 
and there is a chair. Yeah, please, please feel free to jump into the fourth chair if you want to chime in on that one or anything so far. Um, at any rate, this is a. I, I'm curious to know what, what what people who are more versed in surveillance studies might think of this notion that there's a there's a limit to the utility of the concept of surveillance as we get into this. Well, I, th- I think people, so like Elisa Morrison, and I'm just going to riff and wait for somebody who wants to come up, but Elisa Morrison is written, a, and James Harding, right? It, yes. I mean, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's cut off, right? I think, I think it's on a, on a continuity. And, and it's true that there are certain forms of, of what we call surveillance that are very ocular driven or, or dependent upon watching and who is watching. Um, but but I think that that metaphor of thanks, Elisa. But that metaphor of watching applies even when there's not something necessarily to be seen. But thank you, Sarah. I, I was named, uh, so I felt like I. I, was, I, I, yes, I intended to name you. Yes, thank, thank you. you. I'm Elisa Morrison. Um, thank you. Yeah, I think it's actually a really great point, panel, that you're bringing up, and um, and I'm thinking of so Steve Mann's now famous, you know, as you mentioned before, his play with this and, and uh, changing it to surveillance watching from beneath. Mm-hmm. And you speak French, so you need to help me with this. But things like, so what is the French for watching from inside your pocket? Or <laughs> watching from, you know, something that is like um, underneath my skin? Or right. watching from, or and maybe not watching, but sensing from right. um, my footsteps? Right. And so I think that you're right that it is something that is not simply ocular anymore mm-hmm. and it's also not from above anymore right. and it's a much more um i this so maybe we need to switch to german which strings together so many words right <laughs> but something that's like you know um something that is asking me to participate and when i participate it senses what i'm doing and then keeps track of that forever even if i have long forgotten it right. german word that you know something like that that that's actually what's happening right. now right. um uh, and it's not, it's right, it's not ocular and it's not simply um, uh, monodirectional. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the constant and hyperactive production of information and traces of actions and traces of movements that some of which get comprehended, some of which get analyzed, get processed in all sorts of other ways. I don't know what the German portmanteau for that. But I, but, but I, but I, I wonder in terms of if we talk about participation, like this is where that word participation becomes variable and situational, right? You know, so it's not necessarily I willfully am handing this to you mm-hmm. right now. There's many instances in which, you know, by being in a room, um, you know, things can be taken from you, numbers mm-hmm. pulled off your cell phone, stuff like that, right? Um, you know, and I think that's where it gets mm-hmm. more, that's where it gets really kind of complicated. Yeah, you know, and, and actually, the minority report tie into the right? lexicon <laughs> for it of, right, things that are taken from me without my permission, things right. that I feel like I have to give uh, because then I won't get to do this other thing that I need to do slash really want to do, or things that I think is are a game. And yeah. actually, it turns out Netflix was watching all along kind of thing. Yes. You know, yeah. Or it's just like you're walking across the street, mm-hmm. you know, or you mm-hmm. walk into a building, um, you know, and then, you know, sort of things can be pulled off your mm-hmm. phone. Right? That's also where, like, one of the discussions from this morning between uh, Michelle Ellsworth and um, uh, Raja Feather Kelly, I don't know if either of them are here, um, but, but the question of, of new audiences and, uh, and, 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 and that I think we sometimes forget, and, and Michelle's comment about uh, asking for students to look and make work for a specifically new audience, and one of them identifying the, the people who watch and remove right, the quote-unquote unwatchable content from Facebook and things like this, right? that, that we sometimes also, I think, fall into pits of thinking that 
uh, or traps of thinking that, that certain kinds of vision and viewing are now gone and done, but it's just they've been moved to the margins and to, to communities um, and, and, and people who, who don't have other options. And so we now have moved the unwatchable things to, to other people who watch them for us and remove them. And, and so I think there's, there's, there's a danger also in moving, in, in thinking that we've gotten rid, rid of completely the power of, 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 of watching in the act of where watching happens in this kind of context. Indeed. And, and speaking of things being taken from people and unwatchable things, um, we also wanted to take some time in the podcast to talk about deep fakes. Yeah. Um, deep fakes are... That was a really nice segue. It was right. Well it done. Was well done. Yes, please, please. <laughs> Clap for the segue. Um, uh, uh, we wanted to look at deep fakes. We looked at John Fletcher's article in the New Theater Journal entitled Deep Fakes, Artificial Intelligence, and Some Type of Dystopia, The New Faces of Online Post-Fact Performance. Uh, John Fletcher begins with some examples of deep fakes. We probably all know what these are, but Harvey, do you want to sort of serve up what a deep fake is and, and where, yeah. where you're at with deep fakes? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what John Fletcher does in this article, which is published in Theater Journal, is he, he begins uh, with essentially an anecdote. And he's talking about a video uh, that's labeled, you know, do not believe what you see. Um, and, or I can't believe what, what he just did or something like that. And it's uh, a video of Barack Obama. So we're speaking, you know, directly at a camera, uh, and it's very, uh, it's Barack Obama's voice, or so it seems, uh, but it's, you know, in terms of content, it's uncharacteristically Obama, right? It's quite critical, it's uh, 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 calling people names, right? It's being dismissive of, you know, Trump, you know, quite aggressively. And uh, there's a split-screen moment in which, and it reveals, you know, the image of Obama, the computer-generated image of Obama, next to Jordan Peele, right, the actor uh, who's impersonating Obama, who's actually, it's actually his voice, yeah, and the argument here is do not believe what you see, right, you know, that technology can be manipulated. Uh, and what John Fletcher argues uh, in this piece is that, you know, within this, co this contemporary moment, um, not only have we always been able to be fooled, you know, by technology and also just by theater, if you think about it historically, uh, but that we're at this moment where technology has advanced to such an extent that it's getting increasingly hard to trust what you see. It's getting harder to trust videos. Um, you know, just because you see it there doesn't mean it's a real thing. Uh, and that prompts a, a longer engagement around, you know, how we understand the sort of technology, the sort of existence of fake app, for example, where you can manufacture videos and, and move faces, you can change people's voices and stuff like that. You know, so that creates a question around what are the ethics of technology within this moment in which um, you want to have the sense of truth, you know, that's always being undermined by, by the ocular, right? Yeah. What do you think about this? I think it's. I think the ethical field it opens up is a very important one. Um, Fletcher sort of comes down on a kind of how alarmed should we be and what should we as scholars be doing. Uh, you know, I think he's he's rather alarmed. I think there's a sort of in infusion of Trump era liberal loathing and paranoia. I'm not as alarmed. I don't think about deep fakes as John Fletcher is. To my mind, this is. Not that there's nothing new under the sun, and maybe this will be weaponized. Certainly, it will be weaponized to mess with democracies and attack individuals. Um, um, uh, but to my mind, there's always, uh, and this I'm going to be cranky historian yet again in this segment. But there, you know, the fake, the uh, the the falsification of handwriting is an ancient art. And as long as there have been recordable media, there have been ways to try to fake recorded 
media and falsify identity and falsify consent. And, and I think as new media emerged, as print emerged and became widely distributed, people had to learn how, to, how skeptical to be about print. And it is a long time since we have been able to uh, manipulate audio recordings to make it sound like people are saying things they aren't saying. But that has not, in, you know, on its own driven Western democracies off the rails. So I just, I'm not terribly alarmed about the deep fakes. To my mind, the question that is interesting about this phenomenon is, is this a new category of performance? If you have, as I saw recently, then we'll never be able to scrub off the back of my retinas, uh, you know, uh, Jennifer Lawrence giving an acceptance speech at a podium, but it's Steve Buscemi's face on her body and her voice. You know, what, what, how do we understand the, the uh, hybridization or the sort of smashing together of, of you know, re recordings of what were originally strips of behavior as we'd understand them in our quotidian lives, but then have been hyper-processed through AI and made into these strange monstrous combinations. Who performed that? Who made that thing? Was it Jennifer Lawrence? Was it Steve Buscemi? Was it the, the, the evil geniuses who created it? Um, these are my questions. Um, we have a, a, a person in the fourth chair. Sir, would you like to chime in? Hello, uh, my name is David, and I'm actually a researcher in AI. Um, and so when I, when I stood up to sit here, you were talking about something very different than what you're talking about now. <laughs> Sorry, we do, we do go on. Um, and, and actually, a lot of the things that came out of your mouth were things that I was thinking. You know, this idea that, uh, especially in, in an era of fake news, you know, how does an idea like this or a concept or something visual like this get weaponized to undermine the validity, you know, the validity of the news. Uh, that, that was, that, you know, this is something that's been super alarming since uh, way back when I think even the New York Times did a, a quick video piece of two students who came up with this process, you know. And uh, it was funny because if, if one of them, the one who was being faked, ran their hand over their mouth, it did this really strange, bizarre sort of digital, uh, you know, distortion effect that was kind of creepy. But, um, <laughs> so, and then you brought it into the territory of performance, which is, I think, kind of where this is going, you know, public figures have always been some sort of construct, and, and probably more so in media that is still, you know, photographs and uh, print and editorial, but now it seems like we're, we're really getting to the point where we might see that moving into uh, more film or video-based uh, characters. Um, so, so what do you have to say about that aspect of where this might actually become part of maybe mainstream performance in the visual arts rather than necessarily, hopefully, not something that gets weaponized for the sake of undermining uh, video evidence or interviews or things that people have said in public? Well, I think in terms of of performance, I mean, we, we sort of are already on this line with, with CGI, right? And, um, and there are lots of really interesting examples of uh, technologists making acting choices for performers um, that, that may or may not be better acting choices than the ones the, the, the live actors were making. I'm thinking particularly of, um, and this is a, an example that, that um, my colleague Ralph um, Ramchart um, made many years ago um, in, in Avatar. Right, where there's a moment where the, I can't remember the character names because I didn't think I was gonna have to talk about Avatar today, but the, um, the, 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 the woman blue thing. Um, They're Navi, right? They're Navi. Okay, the lady Navi, right? Like, because um, we only get one in all of these, right? 
we get one woman, female, um, is, um, is talking to, to the, 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 our main character, and she's really mad at him, and she's telling him how mad she is. And in the, in the live action, the, the actor right, looked, at her, looked at her partner, and, and as she was sort of delivering the line of anger, averted her eyes. And it, it was this great kind of moment that captured the ambivalence of that character, right? That she wasn't really mad, that she was right, feeling lots of different things, and it was clear. And then the technologist decided that that was like a completely, like she had done the wrong thing. She had made a, an acting mistake, so they fixed it. So that she doesn't avert her eyes. Her eyes are completely, and so it's, so in some ways, like in terms of the, the territory of moving into these spaces, um, in terms of fiction, Right, I think we're we've, we're sort of continuing the, the 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 move that we've been on for a long, long time, and right. going back into Pepper's Ghost and even earlier in terms of theater technologies. The the question of performance in the in the more marginal forms, like you know, revenge pornography and the ability to make celebrities and uh, appear to be doing things, and the consumption of uh, of bodies and 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 action and gestures and and words that may or may not be aligned or assigned to um, individuals with agency and nevertheless have full performative lives in and through media, um, you know, this question of performance covers that as well for me. And, and so I think that, that I find really troubling. The only possible light is that at some point we distrust everything. <laughs> and then we all go back and watch the theater where we know it's fake anyway. Right, and we just sort of give up on it. And we just we just engage with human bodies, and we don't think that there's anything. Right, so I, there's a, I don't know. There's a kind of interesting move there. That that's how I would think. So there's a follow-on question to that because I I don't know I, I. When I think of my biggest fears, I think of my mom sometimes. You know the the messages that uh, some people who are not media literate will just post Absolutely. as if it was reality, as if it was truth, um, and. Uh, you know what? What are your thoughts about you know the lengths to which uh, even this administration seems to be undermining, let's say, the the media, or just the how? What to what level do we have to maybe even as a as a culture really focus on media literacy to help contextualize some of these conversations? This and is, with that, I'm going to step down because okay. I think that this is fascinating <laughs> and I'd rather watch from over there. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you, David. Really wonderful. Um, this, this is one of the points that John Fletcher makes in his article, which is that we should be educating people. We should heighten media literacy. We should let people know there's fake stuff out there. I just don't, I don't think that the deep fake raises the quantum of fakery. I mean, I think I, maybe I will be surprised. The idea is that you could craft something truly damning that, that, and then push it out to tens of millions of people online and before there was a chance to take it back, someone's reputation would be destroyed. Like, that's the fear. But we have, he, Fletcher mentions the fact that uh, digital photography at first was not admissible in court, and then they realized that you can do forensics on a digital image and figure out if it's been tampered with or not. I would, not, not being data savvy, I would still imagine that you can look at the code of a deep fake video and tell something about the way it was created. Um, that would allow us to sort fact from fiction. Um, and, I, and I think it was in uh, John's article, I could be mistaken, so if I'm wrong, let me know, um, you know, that there was a moment where he was talking about 
um, sort of how to fact check, you know, and um, he was citing a study yes. yeah. in which it was, if I remember, if I remember correctly, it was like there's three groups. There were students at the University of Washington. Was that that? Undergraduate Stanford. students, uh, historians, academic His, historians. Academic historians, and then sort of media, like newspaper fact checkers. Right. And, um, and, you know, two of the three got it wrong. Uh, and the one group that got it right was the media fact checkers, the newspaper fact checkers. And I was talking about the need to actually cross-reference in real time, right? So not to read a source and assume you can sort of see if it's true or not. It was actually to almost do com comparative sort of split screen line by line um, comparisons to, you know, to, to see if this is true or not. Uh, and it was, it was disappointing, you know, that, that the uh, academic historians failed. I was just like, I was like, I thought we'd win. I thought we'd win one. Um, no, but rematch. I, but, rematch. Rematch. You know, but, but, but I think that when you zoom out a bit, I mean, one of the challenges is that, you know, if it's increasingly hard for people who are, you know, sort of well-educated students um, and then ideally well-educated faculty, uh, you know, who are teaching the next generation of hopefully well-educated students, you know, how to tell the difference and, and we're failing, that's a problem. Um, and in addition, when you think about how news circulates these days, people struggle to identify the source, mm -hmm. right? You know, it, it's one of those things where it comes across your feed in some way, you know, but, you know, if you're asked to sort of anchor it in terms of how do I know it's a legitimate source, you know, people often struggle. Um, uh, and rely upon just the frequency of headlines or sometimes that video clip, which we know we can over trust. Mm -hmm. We have another um, occupant of the fourth chair. Sir, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nick Pagino, and I'm going to talk to you from uh, the perspective of my industrial light and magic hat, um, which I no longer wear. Okay. Um, but, um, and I want to talk about that quantum of understanding and uh, in literacy of understanding of images um, that you were speculating about earlier. So um, just to paint a little bit of a picture, mm -hmm. um, if we think back to like 100 or 150 years ago, um, a newspaper article, um, one that comes to mind is uh, an engraving of the assassination of um, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. So you've probably seen this newspaper image where you know um, Booth is like flying out of the yeah. um, balustrade, and um, his wife is like this, and he's like this. <laughs> and there's people like this on the ground, and there's like explosions in the air, and you know it's a single image. And people had literacy to understand that yes, many of these things happened, not necessarily all simultaneously in this amazing you know tableau, but they understood what they were viewing. And um, but there was like. There's learning and literacy, like what am I looking at here, and how do I understand this picture? And later, we get to National Geographic moving the pyramids, and people are like, hey, wait, that's not how I remember it looks. And we have another moment of literacy at that point where we understand that um, images have been constructed for a narrative. And mm -hmm. um, these pyramids exist nearby, they're really pretty, and gosh, I have a, a fine thing with a camel on the cover of my magazine, and people accept that and move on and realize that um, an image is not necessarily what we see. And we move on even more in terms of literacy and we start to understand that, you know what, um, that person really didn't look like that before they made the cover of the magazine and um, they've had you know, 30 pounds airbrushed off. And that becomes understood and it becomes part of our narrative. Mm -hmm. But we're at a point now, um, and this is the part we're gonna come back to like industrial light and magic and talk about the Incredible Hulk for a second. Um, in the first Avengers movie, um, the Incredible Hulk is really, really lifelike. Um, and if you can accept that there's a big green man, there's a number of tricks and reasons why you accept him as like an emotional being. And one of those tricks is that his physiology is simulated all the way down to his bones. 
and there's a blood flow map. And like even as I'm speaking to you right now, and you're trying to understand where I'm coming from at a subconscious level, like how, how am I flushing? And little nuances like that, that you probably are not, unless if you're really specifically trained, going to understand, and that you're understanding from me as I talk to you. Mm -hmm. And we had people who studied those things, understood them, and they got like the Hulk's cheeks to flush um, in coordination with a number of things that made him feel like he was an alive character. Mm -hmm. Now, in the period that we're in now, um, with fakes and generative anti-fakes, um, which means that no matter how much you wish that there's gonna be an AI that can detect fakes, um, that's a delusion, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, it's, they will not be detectable, I guarantee you. Um, the thing that's gonna be different is that the fakes are going to be able to have these unconscious clues that your conscious mind can't filter or separate. Yes. So if I present to you a very fake thing, like um, putting words in somebody else's mouth, um, and I have these cues that, you know, at a, a mirror neuron level you respond to, and no matter how intelligent and versed in the art that you are, and you're not gonna be able to help yourself in your response uh, to these images. And so I do think that we've reached a quantum here of literate understanding um, that has been bridged that you can't go back on and count on any level of education or priming um, to inoculate people against. That's uh, fascinating. I, I, I mean, I, I remain skeptical partly because I, I think we still, we aren't all the way in the matrix yet. I mean, we mm -hmm. will have recourse to older forms of verification, right? Yeah. Was there a witness to this event? Does the person depicted affirm that this is what they said, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine ways to perfect a, a, a prestige where there's just no way to prove that a person didn't say this. But in many cases, I think you're, a, I don't know, a sort of socially distributed intelligence, a, a, a regime of facts that's supported in non-screenal phenomena, non-digitized phenomena mm -hmm. will give us some safeguard against these things. And maybe we'll just be, remain, we'll, we'll become very, very skeptical of videos where we see someone say something strange. So the positive and uh, hopeful side of me completely agrees with you. Yeah. Um, at the same time, um, there, I would say, you know, a great many people um, that I know um, prefer to delegate to authority than mm -hmm. to have form an opinion. And as soon as I've got a compelling and believable thing um, that they saw on TV, um, it's gonna compel and delegate. And my further fear, as I said, um, is that even um, in the case of someone like us who's trained, I'm gonna be able to compel a response, an unwilling response in you uh, through things that are programmed at a biological level. Well, One of the things that, then I, to, so tonight we're, we're watching Minority Report Right, the film based on the Philip K. Dick uh, novella. Um, there's another, your, your comments really remind me of, of another short story of his um, that was also made into two really bad movies. Of, of um, The movies were Total or Recall. Or really great. Uh, well, you know, I mean, but, but the book that they were based on, or the, the short story they were based on is We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so this question of memory and fact-checking with, with witnesses and who saw what and who verifies, right? We've already seen multiple instances of, of individual memory is failing. And so this idea of 
of of memory in, in that in that story I've I've often found really compelling. Mm -hmm. But but the thing that it also connects to, which is was the tagline for the original movie in the 1980s with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, which I, I, I loved the movie poster, even though I didn't necessarily love the movie, which the tagline was, how would you know if somebody stole your mind? And what you're talking about is precisely that, which mm -hmm. is that when, and the whole subliminal, right, which we've had for a, you know, a while, but they have the ability of certain media to communicate with us on a level that we're not prepared to, or even physically, physiological, neurologically capable of interrupting Right. Once those beliefs become our ideas, our beliefs, then it's kind of like game over. Right. Mm -hmm. There's no point in, like, there's no level of literacy that can yeah. guard against what you think you thought of organically. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I, I wonder if there's a way in which we're just so overextended, you know, that we we lack the time to verify, um, and you know, so we. You know, in some cases, it's you, you, you trust the source or the flow, like the networks you're in, um, and then it becomes one of those things where it's you say, well, if my friends believe it, you know, it must be true, right? You know, where you look for verification, not you know by looking at the source, by by looking at the people who are around you, um, you know. And I think that you know, to to take a contemporary news item that's happening right now, you have the whole uh, Jesse Smollett. Um, um, situation. I mean, there's been so many stories that have circulated over the course of the past week. You know that there's that there's a there's a real profound sense of confusion that's happening right now. Um, you know that you don't know what to believe, who to trust. Um, do you trust the police? Do you trust the person? Do you trust which news outlet story do you take into account? Um, and it's interesting how the result has been in some ways a silencing. You know, you know, through the confusion of so many different feeds offering different perspectives on a singular account that has many possible variations. Right. Let's say thank you to, to Nick who, who left the fourth chair and now we have another person in the fourth chair. I think we have maybe one more minute on this topic and then we need to move on to Bandersnatch. Oh yes, <clears throat> my name is Kamal uh, Sinclair. I work with the Sundance Institute. And just a couple, I, I just wanna thank you Nick so much for talking about um, the impact of story and image on our subconscious uh, and our physiological parts of our um, uh, cognition that we don't even understand in, in a very uh, conscious way. And it, it just really, um, it makes me think about how story is the code for the operating system for humanity. Like so much of how we transfer identity, performance, signifiers, um, even the DNA mutations that happen from post-traumatic stress disorder of a story being told to us. Like I was at a, a conference and a, a neurologist told me, he said, well, you know, the Black Lives Matter people are just reacting to their epigenetics. They're not really reacting to something that's happening in real time now. And I said, well, maybe the police officers are operating on their epigenetics from the media that they've consumed over the, you know, hundreds of years of, of narratives of the boogeyman, of the black man from Birth of a Nation before that and on. And so it just really, um, when, I, when we think about that idea of, is it ocular, is it, is, it, is it conscious discrimination that's carrying forward these issues that you were saying? Is it really you know, uh, a conscious effort like the FBI was doing with the Black Panthers and so forth in the past? I think that it doesn't matter if the outcome is the same. And I think that that's one of the major issues with these things like, in 1983-84, women dropped out of computer coding 
where they didn't leave the medical or the legal or the physical sciences. And when the investigative journalism happened, it was because of the stories we were telling about who was the tech geek identity. And when they went back to ask the women, why did you drop out of your positions? They said, well, I all, all of a sudden I didn't feel smart enough and I didn't feel like I belonged. They started performing inferiority and the, their white male peers started performing superiority and starting to haze them and toxic masculinity came out and the kind of Gamergate phenomenon started happening in their universities and in their tech um, companies. So that's how critical these missing data sets and these com computational systems are, is that they have such a deep impact on how we even perform our own identities and our own abilities. Thank you so much, Kamal. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we do have to move on to our next topic, um, uh, which is Bandersnatch, the Netflix um, uh, Black Mirror um, playable episode film, a video game. Um, uh, we have all, we've all played it to varying degrees. <laughs> Harvey bailed out early. Um, <coughs> Um, this is, I don't know, I, 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 I guess if it's thumbs up, thumbs down, I, I enjoyed it, I liked it. I guess the question it provoked for me is in what way it's kind of sitting between genres, you know, in what way is this fundamentally different from um, Clue, the 1985 film with Madeline Kahn and Tim Curry where there were three different endings and depending on which movie theater you went to, you saw a different ending and if you got the VHS, you could play all the endings or play with your favorite ending. Um, and I, I don't know, I played one time through, I circled back a few times. How many audience, raise your hand if you've actually played Bandersnatch. Yeah, and if you know what it is but haven't played it. Yes, so um, uh, I don't know, I would say that if, if I'm gonna hang my hat on anything about what makes this different, it's that it has an objective in the way that a video game does, a sort of semi-open world video game like a Mass Effect or um, something like that where you have several options, um, you're always gonna end up in you know, a small handful of different endings, but there's an objective to it. As you're playing through and you get, you know, when you find yourself in a dead end, you can circle back to a limited degree and it, it becomes clear that what you want to do is finish the game. You're, you know, you identify with the character of this white guy protagonist who's building the game called, called Bandersnatch and depending on the choices you make, you die or you don't or the game is released and there's always a review of the game and it's unsatisfactory and it's unsatisfactory and it's very clear that you've adopted this objective unwittingly that you want to finish the game and you want it to be good. So to my mind, this was the, this was the thing that made it different. It, it, the experience was like watching a television episode or a film, but I realized I was playing because I was trying to get a certain outcome, which I had not had, I had not experienced that with other filmic multi-ending uh, experiences or even with the old choose your own adventure books right I didn't with those books I didn't quite know where I wanted to end up with Bandersnatch I did so I don't know Harvey Sarah your takes on Bandersnatch yeah well I gave up I I I I, I, I will admit I um I don't know I mean I, so I I was one of those kids who liked choose your own adventure books uh and um and you know, I, I think I, a short story. Um, when I, I I won some prize when I was I don't know like ten or something, you know, and it was, I had a hundred dollars. It was a hundred dollar prize for a bookstore. 
And I told my mother I was going to buy all Choose Your Own Adventure books. She's like, no, you're not. You're going to buy a dictionary. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And and then being, and, and after I was very not happy about the fact that like, you know, like, I would never enter any sort of, like, academic competition again if I had to buy dictionaries in the future. Me and my mother then agreed to, like, I had to buy the dictionary with the prize money, but then I, she bought me some Choose Your Own Adventure books. You know, and I love those books because I could go back, and I, I would admit, I would sort of cheat. I, re, I would realize I didn't actually like how the story was going, and so, you know, so I'd backtrack and be like, I want to do something else. You know, but what kind of annoyed me, you know, about Bandersnatch was that, like, I was just, I'm not sure if I like where this is going. Let me kind of go back 10 seconds or 30 seconds to change my decision midstream, and I couldn't go back. Um, and, and, that, and that kind of annoyed me. And then there were a couple of choices where I felt like I didn't have a choice, you know, where it just was like, it was like a, it was a railed narrative to the point where, uh, you know, that became dissatisfying to me, just, you know, the limitations on me as a viewer. You know, so that's when I was just like, you know, I love our podcast, but... I'm quitting this this episode. It was that bad. <laughs> yeah, that bad. Like, <laughs> so I I this and this was my suggestion to the podcast. So <laughs> my bad. Sorry, Harvey. Um, in part because I've uh, watched it. Uh, I've watched it several times, um, and I became really interested not so much in the film slash game, but in the um, in the communities coming up around it. Um, so I began really became really interested in um, in the in the publications that people were writing about what they had found, and and what I love is that you get people presenting it as like if you do this then this then this, um, but they leave out a bunch of their choices and you realize you can make all the choices they mention, uh, but you get something slightly different because because there are so many iterations of it, um, and so then I've just began I just tried to basically find the endings that I really wanted to to find and thought were were compelling. But um, how many times did you play it? I've gone through I think. Like I don't know, like uh, like I think I've cleared it like ten times now, um, but I haven't carefully tracked anything. But I I mean I think fundamentally the 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 film um, it rewards Black Mirror fans, right? So the more that you've watched the and engaged with the show in different domains, it it really rewards. Um, uh, but it also very much participates in all the kind of forms of erasure that we're talking about here. Right? Like women are completely marginalized, and um, uh, and people of color are are, are almost um, completely absent, which is actually very unusual for a Black Mirror episode. Um, it's one of the things that I found most striking about the the this film in comparison with other with other episodes is just how how white it is and how peripheral both the women and the uh, any any folks of color are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, someone has, has sat in the fourth chair. Hello. I have. Hi. I'm uh, Lori Landay, and um, I teach a course, Digital Narrative, Theory and Practice, and at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and I just uh, taught Bandersnatch on Tuesday <laughs> in that class. <laughs> I've been thinking about it, and um, uh, as I uh, showed it to my students and they made their choices with yelling and uh, (laughs) loudest kind of thing, Um, and having watched it myself when it first came out. Um, uh, It seems to me that it's not necessarily the kind of identification that we might find with a regular protagonist, you know, in, in, or a hero in, um, you know, a film or a a Black Mirror episode, but that, um, 
but you know, my students wanted to like have bad stuff happen to that character, you know? And it, so it's more like a video game character. Once they realized that there are do-overs, once you realize this is a game character with multiple lives, and there are a lot of people who've written about that idea with game characters and extra lives and not permanent death and what that means, then, then it's like, hey, let's, let's do this, let's do that, let's have more action. You know, I don't want to spoil things for people who haven't seen it yet, because it's worth, it's worth watching, it's worth uh, uh, experimenting with. And um, then it becomes play. So it's not watching in the same way as kind of playing it. And that's where interactive fiction, interactive narrative kind of wants to be. And so um, I thought it was successful. And, and like seamless, I mean, in terms of going to that next choice. I mean, if anyone's ever looked at any of the uh, interactive DVD ROMs, mm-hmm. yeah. right? You know, like very bad, <laughs> kind of like, oh, taking out the remote. And so I, I, th- I thought it was really interesting. I'm glad you chose it for the podcast. I think it was a good choice and I, I think it's significant. See Harvey. <laughs> what, what, I'm curious. Do does anyone know? I, I, I hear that Nate, that Netflix, of course, is like vacuuming up all your choices and the data. I'm perplexed about what that data tells them. I mean, on one hand, there's that like the first choice you make is what brand of cereal you're going to have in the morning, and that has sort of obvious implications. But then, um, uh, you well, know, except I, that one of them is real and one of them is not. No, right. Right. Well, I thought one of them was you could buy if if you would be familiar to you if you're British. But one, if you're American, right? is oh, the I sugar puffs the, totally? I thought the fake? sugar puffs was fake. I think sugar puff might, might be real. It might be deep fake. Um, uh, but I guess I, I don't know. Now I'm answering my own question so because the sugar I puffs exist, <laughs> right? But like Harvey, okay. no. never mind. I, <laughs> Harvey, like you, I felt highly compelled to make certain choices. Um, and then, you know, at one moment, I found myself on the balcony with, with Colin, and it was I going to jump, or was, I, was Colin going to jump off the balcony, and I jumped, which I felt like I was doing the thing I didn't want to do. I felt, very, mm. I felt very pressured by the narrative to do certain things rather than others, and I suppose it can be generating information about the way that people want their narratives, right? And, and in the same way that, they, that it turns out House of Cards is just well. a Frankenstein of a bunch of consumer, like, dis- you know, disassociated consumer choices yeah, that I, they've decided I, to put I, into the same project. There's probably somebody those. in the room who can answer this better than I can, but my, my guess is that Netflix doesn't care what choices you make. It more cares how long you spend in it, how often you come back to it, how, that, how, how your engagement with this aligns with with other things, uh, and I'm sure that what they're what they're most interested in is how they can j- use another one of these to put pu- to push and to generate future like another product, right? Like so, if if this demographic of people quits after the first ten minutes, right, <laughs> and if a, if a significant number of people all depart at a at a at a juncture, okay, there's something about that that moment or that iteration of that time so you need to put something right i mean i think it's all refinement to well, the other products except they they are also and i'll let industrial light magic talk about it too but but they they oh oh, oh you want to you want to answer it oh let we should let heidi answer it you you yeah. can you can say oh. your piece and then oh, okay, we'll have okay. we'll have a new yeah. guest in the chair. Thank <laughs> well you. so um they they do want they they do want to pay attention to uh, at what point you leave something. They want to pay attention to uh, that. And now that they are being content creators and making those choices, that it does matter. And it does matter the kind of narratives that, that we're going to get. But um, uh, um, yeah, but I want to hear what Heidi has to <laughs> Yes, please. Hello, Heidi Boisvert. 
Um, I'm actually building a uh, open source biometric lab and uh, AI system to isolate the variables, the narrative ingredients that move us to act. So that's what it, it also touches upon kind of what we're discussing around Vandersnatch, because I think what's happening is we're seeing, perhaps in terms of that data gathering, we're seeing a movement um, away from mass media strategies towards strategies that are targeted on unique biological signatures, right? So that we're going to start seeing content that's not really just sort of interactive based on our choices, but because our cognitive and effective faculties are being taken over uh, to a degree, we're actually going to see content that's bioadaptive. And so we won't necessarily have those choices real time. They'll actually be responding to our, our unconscious, um, you know, physiological responses. So. Sorry, that's an audible, invisible um, sigh on my part. Yeah, and um, actually, I really appreciated the three threads that you brought together because it really shows, and it's an indicator for kind of the future where we're starting to see a combination of like AI, biometrics, and psychographics, right, right that are going to create predictive models that are going to then shape the content that we're viewing and then ultimately kind of shape our, um, you know, our our feelings, our sentiment, our behavior patterns in can society. You, can I ask you, what's the guiding, what's the end of a project like this? Is it to make media that's more sticky and addictive and, and compelling? Is it to break new aesthetic frontiers? I mean, do you see yourself as involved in the process of designing an industrial product? No, I mean, so Nielsen Neuro is building some of these tools, but obviously they're closed source and hard coded, right? So I'm actually, I have some funds from the pop culture collaborative so it's really focused on creating more authentic and inclusive narratives so it's for this it, i'm open sourcing it predominantly for ngos culture and educational organizations to create more impactful media okay. um, so part of the question i'm struggling with right now is like the ethics right the ethics of button pushing the ethics of open sourcing and what does that mean are there other licensing models that would allow it to have a certain use value fantastic Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Heidi. So in the interest of staying on time, I think we have to move into drafts. This has been great. Thank you so much, those of you who came in and, and, and contributed uh, to the conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, drafts, regular listeners to the show will know, are our thoughts, our projects and process, our half-formed ideas, our, our daily impressions. Uh, Harvey, what do you have? What's your draft for this episode? Yeah, well, well I'm thinking, geez, th this episode was a little bleak. Yeah, it's, it's a little, <laughs> a little, a little dark. Uh, uh, and, and, but my, my draft centers on uh, thinking about social activism uh, and the idea of belief, right? The, 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 the sense that you know, what compels you to um, either physically go out in the street and march and protest or, you know, uh, make use of social media to virtually march and, and protest, uh, you know, comes from this sort of sense of doing some sort of public good, right? Uh, you know, but how, you know, activists can be on different sides of an issue, you know, and I, and I remember sort of experiencing this as a kid during like um, abortion protests, I grew up in Buffalo and sort of like when the news cameras came on, it was staged in that way. But, but there's a real sense that like people on both sides were doing something they thought was actually a, a public good, you know, but they were diametrically opposed. Um, and, and, I, and I felt like, you know, how do we understand and how do we think about um, the ethics, you know, sort of, sort of one's own sense of personal ethics and belief, right? You know, when they're fundamentally antagonizing, right? Um, you know, so like, how do we move forward as a society? This, this is a perpetual issue. Um, you know, when there's always someone you know who believes as strongly and feel like they're doing the public good, contrary to what you're working working toward. You know, and I was thinking about that in terms of this present moment. You know, whether it's like you know, how do we respond to 
um, sort of uh, police violence and police investigations in Chicago um, sort of tied in with um, you know the, the, the Jesse case um, and then also just gang violence in Chicago how do we deal with sort of activism around Trump you know how do we deal with the declarations of national emergencies in the Constitution you know just this polarizing moment we're in in which you can have a core sense of belief of doing the right thing but they're fundamentally opposed with someone else yeah I mean, I think you're describing politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a great moment for our political system. <laughs> um, Sarah? Um, so it, it has been a little bit of a bleak yeah. um, uh, episode of the podcast. Um, so sorry for doing that to you here at Cersei. You know? <laughs> um, it's like, please have us back. We'll be lighter next time, maybe. Um, no, my, my, uh, so I'd like to, to offer my own more positive example of a social network. Um, which is that I'm, I'm currently working on a book, uh, the Palgrave Handbook for Experimental Theater with my colleague at University of Toronto, Jake, uh, Jacob Gallagher-Ross. And, um, and we've been doing this new thing of, of, cr of creating a table of contents and contributors. Um, and it, it took some doing to get Palgrave to let us do it, but we finally convinced them, which is that um, we didn't start with a table of contents and then plug people into it. We started with people um, and then we asked them what they were writing about and what they wanted to write about. And then we asked them what the book sh should include and who they would like to read. And we have found people, and then from there we basically used what social scientists call snowball sampling, which is that we then have built out our contributors based on the recommendations of, of the initial people that we, we talked to and we are formulating a table of contents that is built around what people think is interesting around these concepts of experimental, Right and theater broadly defined, and so we've had people you know say like I really hope there's dance. I really think that theater means this, and and kind of pushing on it in different ways. Um, and so I just want to sort of take this opportunity to 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 share that, but also to say like how incredibly generous, um, even people who couldn't didn't feel like they could make a contribution right now would then give us the names of like three or you know uh, or more people that they thought should be part of the project and then we get in touch with them and then they have three people and so um, you know it's it's all still in formation so I don't know where it will end up but but it's been a really uh, energizing way to do to do this kind of project and I, I, I learn I'm just been learning a ton and it puts me in touch with all kinds of people that I wouldn't have had reason necessarily to, to be in touch with uh, previously, and I'm learning. And people are recommending like senior scholars that they really want to read, as well as you know their their current graduate students who are doing interesting work. And so we're getting this really nice, diverse group of folks. So I'm very excited about. It's great. That. What's the working title again? Handbook of. I believe it is the the. It's not a very interesting title. <laughs> um, I think it's the Palgrave <laughs> Handbook of of uh, experimental theater. It sounds great. We'll look for yes, it. Yes, which is like I'm as I say it. I'm aware of like the. The recent academic Twitter meme of like the Oxford Handbook of Cambridge Companions <laughs> the Handbook of Handbooks that will be evaluated yes. by the you know committee on committees. So yeah, studies, studies. Um, that's fantastic. My my draft is also on an upbeat note. Um, people in this room may have known about this, but I didn't know about it until uh, last week when I was I was turning on my television, getting you know some dinosaur train ready for my kids, and and the cable tuner was set to HGTV, and there is Tommy. De France, uh, dance scholar, choreographer, who is featured with his partner in an episode of Love It or List It. So, so my, my fellow bourgeois will know HGTV and uh, the show Love It or List It, where two dueling agents compete to get you to either sink a ton of money into your present home and then live in it, or then list it and move and sell it and then move into another home. And Tommy DeFrance is featured 
in this episode of HGTV, Love It or List It, it's episode, um, it's season 14, episode four. If you look it up, the title of the episode is An Artful Promise. It's he and his lovely partner, Bert, and it just rules. He's a good actor, so in the, the those sort of typical plot moments in Love It or List It where, they, you know, the couple comes in and the agent is like, oh, we found like a... You know, we found like an old iron beam we didn't know was there. We can't put in that cantilevered balcony. And Tommy's like, oh no, like we really, it's not a cantilevered balcony, but he really nails those beats. Um, uh, he does, plus he has the most amazing library. Right? Yeah, it was also that, just fun, yeah. like, I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I bet I could write as much as he does if I had that library. Yeah, yeah. but it was great to turn on HGV, HGTV and see a colleague like Tommy. Wait, so did he love it? I, we uh, can't I'll, give it away. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you have to stream the episode. And the thing is, if you go to the HGTV website, it'll tell you the air date so you can watch the next episode as it comes up. You can also get it online. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful so, thing called streaming. So everyone should look that up. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Um, uh, Harvey, Sarah, thank you guys so much. So much fun. Searcy, Brown University, everyone, thank you. Uh, live audience and people who came up and contributed to the conversation, thank you guys so much. Um, and, and listeners, we will uh, release another podcast for you very soon soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.